Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Donald Kemp? Paul Donald Kemp was born in 1947. He went by the name Don. He was raised in Salisbury, Maryland. Later, Don would work as a Madison Avenue advertising executive in New York City. Don sustained serious injuries in a motor vehicle accident in 1976. After spending years recovering, he decided to move to a mountain cabin in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He wanted to write a book about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. In September of 1982, Don sold much of his personal property and bought a Chevrolet Blazer. What he didn't sell, he stuffed into the Blazer and started his drive from New York to Wyoming. On November 15, he stopped at a Western Museum in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He walked throughout the museum for about two hours, but didn't talk to anyone. When he left the museum, his briefcase was still there, so he either accidentally or intentionally left it behind. There were various items in the briefcase, including traveler's checks, an address book, diaries, and his glasses. A few hours after he departed, he called the museum and asked about his briefcase. Museum staff told him they had it. Don indicated he would come back and get it, but he never did. The next day, November 16, at 10 a.m., two patrolmen found Don's blazer. The vehicle was on a ramp off of Interstate 80 in Elk Mountain, Wyoming. This is about 40 miles from the nearest town and about 330 miles away from Don's intended destination. The area where his vehicle was found was essentially a desolate prairie. There wasn't really anything around. The state of the vehicle was unusual. The engine was running, the radio was on, the driver door was open, some articles of clothing belonging to Don were scattered around the vehicle, and the vehicle was so full of Don's other belongings, like camping gear and suitcases, there was only enough space for the driver and nothing else. It was believed that Don's vehicle was there since 7.30 a.m., based on witness statements. I think this gives a good idea of how rural this area was. The vehicle was spotted at 7.30 a.m. by witnesses, and the police didn't check it out until 10 a.m. A search for Don was initiated. There was a single pair of footprints in the snow leading away from his blazer. On the first day, about a mile from the highway, investigators recovered an orange teapot along the footprint trail. On the second day of the search, investigators followed the footprints to a barn that was six miles away. Here they would find three of Don's socks, as well as a pile of sticks, which were arranged in a way as if to start a fire. Hidden in a haystack nearby, they would find a laundry bag, sunflower seeds, and clothing. All these items belonged to Don. 
There were no footprints leading away from the barn. The police reasoned that Don walked backwards in his own footprints to get away from that area. Investigators believe that Don was the only person involved in his disappearance. They thought he must have had some type of mental health problem. On November 19, there was a blizzard in the area. The search for Don was discontinued. Investigators believe that if Don was alive when the blizzard hit, he was certainly not alive afterward. Even though the search only lasted three days, investigators were confident that they had searched the area thoroughly and under normal circumstances, Don should have been located. They were suggesting that he did not want to be found. Five months after Don's disappearance, there were two unconfirmed sightings of him in Casper, Wyoming. The first sighting was a traveling Abraham Lincoln exhibit, which featured memorabilia from the famous president. The second sighting was at a bar. A bartender there remembered serving Don alcohol. Around the same time, something else unusual occurred. Back in New York, Donald Kemp had a friend named Judy Aiello. A few months after Don disappeared, Judy returned home from an extended vacation to find that she had received five phone calls. Two phone calls were received on February 27, 1983, two more on April 5, and the last call was on April 10. There were two messages left for Judy, asking her to return the calls. She was positive the voice on the answering machine belonged to Don, although the caller never indicated his name. In addition, Judy's phone number was unlisted, greatly restricting the number of people who should have had access to it. Judy said that the caller sounded as though he was panicked and left a number for Judy. He desperately wanted her to return his calls. Judy called him the next day. A man answered, and Judy asked if Don was there. The man replied yes, but then quickly said no. Judy then asked the man if he could ask Don to give her a call. The man replied, yeah, before hanging up. So he didn't exactly inspire confidence. Judy never received a return call. Judy contacted Don Kemp's mother, Mary Kemp, who in turn contacted the police. The police were able to trace the calls to a trailer in Casper, Wyoming. Casper is about 125 miles north of Elk Mountain. The trailer was rented by a man named Mark Dennis. Mark was questioned by the police. He said he had nothing to do with making the calls. He never met Don Kemp. It may have been that someone else used his telephone or the telephone records were incorrect. The authorities came to the conclusion that Mark Dennis was not involved in Kemp's disappearance. Part of this determination was based on a so-called lie detector test that they gave to Mark and he passed. Even though nobody can really pass or fail a lie detector test, I've talked about this many times before. These tests are nonsense. Mary Kemp was unconvinced about the conclusion at which the police arrived. She traveled to Wyoming and confronted Mark Dennis herself. Mark refused to speak to her and hired an attorney. Mary said that eventually she was able to contact Mark one time by phone. She said that Mark denied being involved and hung up on her. Three weeks after he was initially questioned by the police, Mark Dennis moved 300 miles away to avoid being harassed by Mary Kemp and being questioned by the local police. On October 4, 1985, hunters discovered human remains four miles from where Don's blazer was found. Investigators identified the remains as belonging to Donald Kemp. An autopsy revealed no indication that he was murdered. 
The police believed he walked into the wilderness and died from exposure. What they didn't understand was how his body was located where the hunters found it, considering that area was thoroughly searched during the initial investigation. If his body was there during the search, it would have been discovered. Mary Kemp would die in 2014 at the age of 86. She never stopped believing that Mark Dennis murdered her son. No charges were ever filed in this case against anyone. Again, the police determined that Donald Kemp walked into the prairie and died of exposure. That was the end of the case as far as they're concerned. Now moving to my analysis. I will start the analysis by looking at some of the mental health factors and then move to the theories about what happened to Donald Kemp. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a Slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. It would appear as though the injuries caused by the automobile collision in 1976 greatly affected Don's priorities, beliefs, and personality. He was no longer interested in his high-paying job. Rather, he wanted to pursue a childhood interest, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, an event that just happens to be connected to many conspiracy theories. When Don was recovering from the collision, he believed that he took mental voyages to the spirit world and was in touch with a woman who was executed by hanging as a conspirator in Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Her name was Mary Surratt. Don's book was not only going to be about Lincoln's murder, it would include a spiritual component he described as the truth. Don proclaimed that the truth would come through him. He was attuned to a higher spiritual plane and the messenger of God. He was a prophet and a leader of man. He wanted to gather together the masses to start a cult. What better place to gather the masses than sparsely populated Wyoming? It sounds as though Don was really staying busy. He was a prophet, leader, messenger, cult founder, and was writing a book. 
Now moving to the theories about what happened in this case. Theory number one, Donald Kemp wandered into the prairie in an effort to end his own life. As far as the evidence that supports this theory, he appeared to be having some mental health difficulties, including potential delusions. He drove into the area where he died, so he arrived of his own volition. Don appeared to be alone. There was only one set of footprints in the snow. He appeared to die due to exposure, a risk of which he had to be aware, and he probably deliberately avoided detection by the searchers. He was on the prairie and should have been easily spotted by the airplane, which was searching for him. As far as evidence that refutes this theory, the phone calls from the residents of Mark Dennis, and the fact that Mark appeared to take supplies which could aid in his survival with him when he walked away from his vehicle, namely sunflower seeds, a teapot, and clothing. Theory number two, this was a homicide. There is not much to support this theory outside of the mysterious phone calls. The fact that Don appeared to be alone is strong evidence against homicide. Again, he stopped the vehicle of his own accord. There was probably no one else out there. Certainly no hitchhiker was out in that area in that weather. His vehicle was too stuffed with items to fit another person in there anyway. Theory number three, Don wandered into the prairie and died from exposure, but this was not his intent. Don's mental state appears to be consistent with this theory. His belief that he was going to start a cult, was a great prophet, and knew the truth all point to delusional thinking. Some of his behavior appears to be paranoid. For example, avoiding the detection of people trying to find him, and walking backwards in his own footprints to get away from the barn. The only evidence refuting this theory would be those phone calls. When weighing all the evidence, which theory is the most probable? I would have to say that theory number three is the most probable. Don was having difficulties with his mental health and wandered into the prairie. He may have thought that people were chasing him, so he hid from the searchers. He was still on the move when the blizzard hit and made his way to a location where his body was found after the search was called off. It's also possible that an animal dragged his remains to that location. After theory number three, I would go with theory number one, he intentionally brought an end to his life, and then theory number two, homicide. The difficulty in this case, of course, is explaining the phone calls from the trailer of Mark Dennis. I think what happened here is that somebody, perhaps Mark, took possession of the address book or some other item containing Judy's number from Don's briefcase. Again, his briefcase was left in that museum, so plenty of people had access to it. Whoever the person was called the number from Mark's trailer just for fun. Maybe it was a prank. Mary Kemp said that the phone records for the phone in Mark's trailer featured a number of what she referred to as sex calls. Once a phone number is out there, it can be transmitted fairly easily. Maybe one person took the address book, gave the number to another person, who in turn gave it to another person. There are many ways it could have ended up being known by whoever made the call. As far as the potential delusions at work in this case, sometimes when people have delusions, they believe that they have been given some type of special knowledge. This is a recurring theme in people who are heavily devoted to conspiracy theories. They have been granted access to top-secret information. This belief has a few consequences, but two are particularly relevant in this case. One, the person believes that there is some type of incredible purpose for their life. They become grandiose. 
In this case, we know that Don thought he was a prophet, a leader, and was going to found a cult. Two, they become paranoid that people are trying to stop them. That's the downside of having all that top secret information. People will try to kill them and prevent the truth from coming out. So people will try to interfere in the person's mission. This type of thinking can be seemingly infectious. Like when other people are exposed to this behavior, they may fall under its spell. They may start to invest in the delusion. For example, there are people who believe that Don was killed because he found out something remarkable about Lincoln's assassination, as if members of some secret organization whose history dates back to the time of Lincoln murdered Don to keep the secret. This sounds more like a movie plot than something that would really happen. This case is a good example of what I call the unsolved mysteries effect. The case of Donald Kemp was featured on the very first Unsolved Mysteries show, which was technically a special hosted by Raymond Burr that aired on January 20, 1987. It is not part of season one. It predated season one. The host for the regular season was, of course, Robert Stack. I've noticed that the original Unsolved Mysteries series, as well as the Netflix version, tend to suffer from the same problem. Even though they're quite enjoyable to watch, and I rather like them, they don't often provide information about the victims that would cast the victims in a negative light. This offers a one-sided view of the situation. I think there are a few reasons for this, including the fact that they prefer a clear-cut narrative with good guys and bad guys being distinct, and the show has a history of cooperating with the family of victims. In the original series, they often used family members to recreate scenarios from the mystery. So the family members were trying to function as actors. Unsolved Mysteries has some of the worst acting I've ever seen. Like, they were so stale and unconvincing. I mean, I think they were trying to do something good. They were family members of victims trying to help their loved ones. But their acting was more than a little distracting. They were almost as bad as Kim Kardashian reading her lines on Saturday Night Live and pretending that she was acting. This touches on the most perplexing unsolved mystery of Kim Kardashian's overwhelming sense of overconfidence, but that mystery may be better categorized as unsolvable as opposed to unsolved. It's a mystery that may persist throughout all time. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season two's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out.
New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.